Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we have a uh, great panel of some of the very finest chefs in Los Angeles to talk about the topic today. Um, Evan Kleiman, everybody knows, has been the chef. Has been a chef in Los Angeles for as long as some of us have been alive. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and had and practically invented uh, the idea of Los Angeles Tuscan cuisine at Angeli Restaurant on Melrose. Very very fine place. She has written some extremely wonderful cookbooks, which are being, you know, ripped off by caterers to this very day. <laughs> and she is, of course, the host of Good Food on KCRW and has been for many years. Peace. <laughs> <laughs> Octavio Becerra has been a chef in Los Angeles since I think he was old enough to shave. <laughs> um, working extremely, pro uh, most prominently with um, Joaquim Splichal in every project from, you worked at Max? Max, yeah, um, And has opened more restaurants than some of us have ever been to. Uh, he's currently on his own for the first time at a wonderful restaurant in Glendale called uh, Palette Food and Wine, with, yeah. uh, which Sherry Verbila from the LA Times called the most exciting restaurant on opening of the year. And for once, I actually agree with her. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> and um, Michael... Chimarusti um, was a protege of uh, Larry Forgione, who is one of the most important chefs in the United States, to work on the concept of American cuisine. And he was, he was there for many years. He worked in various restaurants in New York. He came to acclaim here as a chef of the Water Grill downtown, which he took from sort of a sleep place to a restaurant that's certainly among the top dozen in Los Angeles. And he opened a couple of years ago Providence, which is an extraordinary restaurant with extraordinary tasting menus and ways of approaching food, and especially seafood that are quite unlike anything that's happening in Los Angeles or in fact the country at the moment. And we're very lucky to have him in Los Angeles, and I hope he stays here a long time. <laughs> a while ago, I was when I was when I was living in New York during a brief interregnum, actually, of thinking idly about the food that I was missing from Los Angeles which was almost everything and almost every day. And it occurred to me then that although you can go to a city and you, know, you could go to Charlotte or you could go to Singapore or you could go to London and then somebody says a Chicago bar and grill, you know exactly what they mean. If they say a New York restaurant, you know that 
uh, either they're going to have steaks and Frank Sinatra on the jukebox, or or they're going to have uh, pizza and they're going to talk out of the side of their mouth. <laughs> if somebody says it's a San Francisco restaurant, you start thinking of a very specific kind of lighting and of these days probably either the uh, produce obsession, but or sourdough bread or chipino or y you get the idea. Um, even you know Philadelphia, you start thinking of cheesesteaks. If somebody starts talking about buffalo, you know that you're going to see you know chicken wings on the menu, and if you're lucky, a sandwich called beef on weck, which is um, basically mediocre roast beef on a really good salty roll. <laughs> but it's still hard to put your it was still hard to put my finger on what exactly Los Angeles cuisine meant because in fact you don't go to Cincinnati and see Joe's Los Angeles Bar and Grill <laughs> and you don't see people you know advertising say Los Angeles style burritos I, I there was a place <laughs> We we all know what this. Is. I went to a place in New York once. They had a San Francisco burrito, and it had um, tofu in it. <laughs> and I was very smug about that until I noticed that their Los Angeles burrito was stuffed with uh, sprouts and sunflower seeds. <laughs> and I started thinking, well, you know, what is it that makes Los Angeles cuisine? I mean, we've had in the eighties. Possibly, at least, the most glamorous time for Los Angeles restaurants. Uh, Los Angeles was the town that everybody in the world looked to. I mean, the the experiments that um, Wolfgang Puck started at Spago were in Holiday Inns in Dayton within a year and a half. Uh, that what you know people began calling New Southwestern cuisine didn't begin on a windswept mesa somewhere near Abiquiu. It began in a shopping center in Manhattan Beach where uh, John Settler was putting all the, all the ingredients together that would later be known as that. Um, Roy Amiguchi, who is uh, ruling the world of fusion cuisine in Hawaii and the Western states, had a place where he was trying to make famous gyozas, and they were pretty good gyozas. Um, and it goes up and down the line. The... Um, it's arguable that the first comfort food restaurant, i.e. the uh, first guy to charge $27 for meatloaf, <laughs> uh, was uh, Leonard Schwartz at the old 72 Market Street. Um, but none of those, I think, streamed Los Angeles to the world at large. And when you, with the possible exception of Spago, but because you had heard about their famous food, you know, on the Johnny Carson show every twenty minutes, or um, or possibly Michael's restaurant, which was famous for at the time for having, you know, two uh, inch-sized scallops on a plate the size of Dodger Stadium. Um, there, there wasn't as much of a sense of a place of, of where you are, but. I think there is or has become something that you can call Los Angeles cooking. I think it has a lot to do with um, 
the many and the varied and the very inward looking in a way ethnic communities that are here. I think it has to do with young chefs coming up and eating Thai food and eating not just Chinese food, but Chinese food from, you know, six different provinces and learn the difference between the cooking of Southern Mexico and the cooking of Central Mexico. And I think it also has a lot to do with Los Angeles's the idea of Los Angeles as a one of the world's great port towns, something that you know, a lot of the the great seafood and produce and spices and everything that the world has to offer comes through our ports one way or another. And I decided I thought it would be a good idea to have this conference to talk to some of these excellent chefs who have been cooking in Los Angeles for a really long time and find out what they thought about Los Angeles as a food town, whether it was possible to have something that was purely Los Angeles as opposed to the um, through the looking glass effect of, you know, opening a door into what you thought was a perfectly ordinary restaurant on Hollywood Boulevard and finding yourself eating the food that is as precisely like the cooking in a southern Thai village it is, as it is possible to do with um, American agriculture. Um, Evan, what, when did you start getting the sense that there was something that was specifically Los Angeles cooking? Well, it's funny because I spend a lot of time in Italy and, and when, when I'm there, I, I hang out with people that have become basically family, and, and they have children, and, and they always would ask me, what is, what's, what's the food of Los Angeles? And I would say, the taco. And they'd say, no, that's not from Los Angeles. And they'd be like, yeah, it is. And um, I, I think that I've thought a lot about this. And it, it's interesting, because when you think about places in the world or, or in the states that have more homogenous populations and that have been very stable for a long period of time. So you have foods that um, uh, grew up with populations over 100 years. Um, then you get these unique windows into that particular place. And I think what our unique window is into the world. So I really sort of would like to argue that our food is these extraordinary diverse foods of the world seen through the prism of California produce and other local ingredients. Um, and that I think our flavors tend to be brighter and clearer and less muddied and, um, and more elegant so that the, the takes on each of these flavors that younger chefs are playing with now reveal themselves in a very um, in a very direct way. Thanks. Um, do, do you have any ideas on that, Octavio? <clears throat> well, having being a native of Los Angeles and growing up in in the mid Wilshire <clears throat> um, area, I grew up with uh, you know Korean families and Bolivian families and uh, my Mexican heritage. Uh, you know, the, the days were spent eating foods from three or four different parts of the world. Um, also, you know, having grown up in the Fairfax district, you know, Canners was during high school, you know, a place where, where we would, um, you know, spend most of our time. Um, 
so absolutely uh, this seemingly this endless sense of regional uh, ethnic cuisine uh, has influenced me growing up uh, has certainly influenced uh, not necessarily the way I cook today um, but certainly the way I, I enjoy eating um, um, uh, I remember in the early mid 80s uh, when a good friend of mine Fred Eric and I were doing a, a kitchen at the Flaming Colossus where we would we'd do a dinner thing Friday and Saturday nights it seems like we would spend eight days a week running around the city buying ingredients from uh, the great Thai markets and the great Japanese little uh, produce um, uh, mutual trading, getting these machines that would slice daikons in super thin uh, slivers. So um, you know, clearly the ethnic influence um, uh, has always played a big role. Uh, and once again, it's distilling it down to um, a way that makes sense in, in, in the way we cook in, in our restaurants. I mean, I think it's important that they they are focused um and um so i guess growing up in los angeles has always been a big part of that you cooked in new york for a, a huge part of your career and you were specifically at the sort of the exquisite under the range the the, the very high-end extremely well-trained kitchen um and when you came to Los Angeles to work at the Water Grill, was there a difference between what you thought you would do and what you found yourself ending up doing after you lived here a little while? Yeah, I mean, I I fought it for a long time, and as a matter of fact, uh, you know, I remember when I when I first started there, I would write menu items usually in French first, mm -hmm. because you know, directly before I came to LA, I was working at Le Cirque in New York, and so everybody that was, you know, chefs were French, the cooks were French. Um, and uh, my training was, you know, very much French after my initial period with uh, Larry Forgione. And so, you know, I found myself I would write things in French and then I would translate it in English so I could actually put it on the menu. And then over time, I mean, nowadays, um, you know, that's it's changed so much. And it's definitely because of the exposure that I've had living in, in Los Angeles and, and um, the cuisine that I like to eat when I'm, you know, out with my family or with friends. And, uh, you know, now, I mean, I think, uh, you know, if I spoke to Japanese, it would probably be more helpful. <laughs> uh, at least for from you know uh, a menu writing perspective and from a you know the wealth of ingredients that I that I look to for inspiration you know they they come much more from the east now than they do from anywhere else and and I think that's very much a product of the time that I spent here in Los Angeles um, and uh, you know I'm I'm glad I mean it's it's opened my eyes tremendously and lightened the food that I cook and and um, you know and given me you know a whole new group of um, of ingredients inspirations to work from. You're doing this, um, these wonderful series of dinners called uh, Five by Five, right? Where there are you know five chefs that are, I guess you consider peers, yeah, uh, at the same sort of level of restaurant. They get together and do dinners several times a year. Each of them takes a course in in one or other of the restaurants, and then there's usually a guest chef that comes in from outside. And when you're doing that, when you're working that closely, because I know you you have meetings every... We do, yeah. Uh, are you forging something, do you think, that's more strictly Angelino, something that's like speaking of the area more than you would have if you weren't communicating like that? I think so. I mean, I, I for me, I mean, I think the, the, the what I've taken from that whole experience more than anything else, I mean, the dinners have been, you know, I think uh, for the most part very successful. 
And, uh, you know, I mean, I think over over time, this is the second year that we've done it, and we're coming up on our ninth dinner, actually, at uh, La Terza is the next one, with Gino Angelini as the host chef. And um, I, I feel like um, the the richest part of the whole thing for me has been those meetings where we sit, at, you know, late at night, either at, at Providence or at Melis or at Water Grill or at La Terza, um, and, and plan and drink wine and eat cheese and, you know, and, and, and have a chance to sit and talk among peers and, and talk, you know, about, you know, what's going on in your kitchen and, and what are the problems that you're seeing. And, you know, and I, I definitely think it's helped. Um, I mean, these are all guys that I knew and had seen around town before, um, but it's definitely forged a bit more of a community uh, sort of feel, I think. And it's, it's, it's been great, you know. I, I, and, and, you know, as well, uh, every single dinner I've learned something from one of my peers which i think is incredible you know it's just great because it's especially at our level and you know you know like Oct i'm sure octavio and evan can appreciate this as well you know being in a kitchen it can be even though you're always surrounded by people in the restaurant has you know guests sitting there and dining but it's it's also it's a, a you know sort of an isolating place you spend so much time in your own kitchen and it's great and and inspiring and enriching to sort of get out and and see what other people do yeah it, it, it's always a problem when when chefs work really hard and they don't they don't get out that much. No, <laughs> that's true. Very sheltered. <laughs> and it, so I'm wondering when am I going to get invited to do one of these next dinners? year? <laughs> we're, doing we're doing it again next year for sure. It's been great. You know, each year we choose a charity. Uh, last year was um, last year was Cure Autism Now that we Wonderful. that that uh, we worked with, and this year it's the Special Olympics. And uh, I don't know what it'll be next year, but uh, but they've been great and a lot of fun, very successful and and uh, well received. So. So, Evan, I think I probably first year had your food when I was in college at um, re restaurant called Verdi in yeah, Santa Monica. Verdi or Manja before. Manja before, and when you opened Angeli, it was a very specific idea for a restaurant that I don't think I'd ever seen before, and there were a lot of people who were sort of going a little bit in that direction, you know, especially like uh, Sylvia Mori, um, who had a couple of sort of so society Tuscan restaurants, and I guess probably still does. Um, what was it that, with your training, that made you think that that kind of casual, but, you know, perfectly executed, uh, simple Italian food would match up so well with the city? I think that, um, I mean, like Oct Octavio, I'm a na native. Right. I grew up here. I grew up in Silver Lake. And uh, I, I'm the only child of a single mother. So every single day after school, my entire education, I was at somebody's house. And, um, and it was really interesting for me being an only child, being like a voyeur in different families, whether it's Croatian, Serbo-Croatian, Lithuanian, Mexican, whatever it was. And when I started going to Italy, um, which I started pretty young, I was graduated high school when I was 16, and, and I pretty much decided I was going to study Italian lang language in college, so I started going very young. Um, I think I found this sense of belonging in a culture, in a place through food, that I didn't really experience so much in my own home, since it was just two people. Um, and and this was a time that in LA there was no Italian parsley. There was just curly parsley. The only pasta was um, Ronzoni pasta, 
unless you bought the really long pasta and the blue paper. Um, <laughs> and, and, um, and yet, being there, particularly in, in Lazio and like the Rome area and the, and the Florence area and Tuscany, it was so Californian. It was so much like being at home with these beautiful mountains and the, the blue sky and the sea very close by and this sense of unhurriedness, which, Calif which LA had then still a sense of unhurriedness. For those of you who fought the traffic coming in tonight, mm -hmm. you can barely <laughs> imagine that now. And, and so I think that my instinct was to become extremely reductionist, that I wanted to um, share something that was so simple that your head wasn't in the plate only, only talking about the food, that the food was something sort of more primal and that you can enjoy and maybe you would stop and go, oh, this is really good, while you're talking about something else. And then the architecture also came into play because I made this decision of having this crazy architect do, um, do the restaurant so that it intentionally was not like a Red Booth Italo-American place, which was sort of the place at the time. And, and I think it's, it's that sun. It, it's like that sense of, of clarity and, um, and brightness. Like I love when, when I make my food, even now, I love to look at a plate and see everything that's in it there. There's, it's just completely transparent. There's, there's nothing hidden. Like I, I always laugh when people come to the Thursday night dinners that I do and there's like plate after plate after plate and people are like, is this their meat anything? And I said, the meat looks like meat. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't see meat, there's no meat. Um, so, so I think that's it, really. And, I, and it was hard because people would come in and they would you know, look at a plate of, of spaghetti with garlic and pepper and they go, is that all there is? Go, yeah, go with it. <laughs> uh, of the chefs on the panel, you're the one who's had, who probably has the most constant menu because if people go into your restaurant and they don't see spaghetti they alpaca, get really, they're gonna throw a chair through the Yeah, window. they get really mad. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like being in, it's like being in this really tasty straight jacket. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. But, you know, over time, the thing that's really been incredible is just the market. I mean, the markets are just so beautiful that um, I remember years and years ago, Faith Wollinger, who's a writer that's based in Tuscany, once said to me, you cook Italian food from the region of California. And I think that I tried to do, I struggled doing that for a really long time, and now it is really what it's all about because it's just informed by that you know the sun that's what it is it's it's just the sun which makes everything grow last night i was uh, with a group of italian chefs and <clears throat> he tells me that in italy um uh there's a saying that uh, you get great ingredients and don't bust its balls <laughs> <laughs> i love that right? that's perfect just let it be just let it be yeah <laughs> so, uh, Octavio, you've uh, you've actually spent, or you spent a lot of your career consulting, you know, flying in, you know, jetting in from out of, out of town, opening restaurants for people, and doing it for a couple of months and then coming back. And when you're there and, and you're in another town and you're basically transporting 
uh, your cuisine. I've always wondered, is do you consider it just your cuisine? Do you consider it's a bit of Los Angeles that you're bringing to like Chicago? Um, is it completely different trying to work in other cities with other ingredients doing the same kind of food you were doing here? I mean, I think for the, for the most part, one of the first things we do is when we land is we we hit the streets. You know, we go to the markets, we go to the, the little neighborhoods and the communities and, and see, you know, who's buying what. And uh, so we're in search of ingredients. I think the sensibility is just, you know, uh, applying those ingredients in a way that you kind of, as the Italians would say, you know, don't over manipulate it. Um, so, um, and I think there's a sense of confidence that, that we have. I mean, even if we're ex experimenting and trying different things that might be considered a little bit too obscure, um, you know, the sense of confidence, uh, I think goes a long way going into these situations, kind of demonstrating to these cooks and to these restaurateurs, um, that it, it, uh, it doesn't need to be overly complicated, um. Uh, and, and it's actually an interesting thing because when, when you leave these jobs, you know, the most important thing is the influence that you leave behind. Um, uh, and that's what we really try to communicate with these cooks and these chefs is it's, um, it's how we apply those ingredients. Um, do, you, do you spend a lot of time in, uh, Michael, do you spend a lot of time in markets? I don't mean just farmer's markets, I mean, you know, going, possibly going to a strange Asian market or going to a strange Latin market and picking up a tuber and wondering what it is and what a sauce might taste like and, or what a certain kind of chorizo might be and trying to figure out how you apply it to your food. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I, I, it, there, there comes a time usually, I mean, um, you know, I hit it every couple of months where I'm just like, tired of looking at everything that's in the refrigerator, tired of looking at what's in the pantry. Um, and, you know, and I just, you know, I'll do exactly as you said, you know, go to, there's a big Korean market that I've been to several times on, over on Olympic, I think it is. It's just giant. It's like, it's, you know, Korean Ralph's. Uh, it's not a Ralph's, but, you know, of, of that same size. And, um, you know, you get lost in those aisles forever, you know, um, or Mitsua downtown. I, I, I love that store. You know, they, they, they have an entire aisle that pretty much is just salts and chilies. You know, different togarashis, different sea salts that have, some have minerals in them, um, uh, others have, uh, you know, there's bonita ground in the salt, there's seaweed ground in the salt in some of them, and I'll just go there and buy five or six and, and bring them back to the kitchen and, and play with them, or agar agar that they have there that, you know, comes in a completely different form than what we're used to working with, or... Um, you know, I mean, or go to the, you know, the fish market, International Marine Products downtown and, um, you know, and just bring home a fish that I don't know what its name is and I don't know what it looks like on the inside and I've never tasted it. And, you know, I forgot the Japanese name by the time I get back to the restaurant. But, <laughs> you know, just I figured it's a, f a fish is a fish. It has fins and scales and, um, <laughs> you know, just try to get the bones out and cook it and see how it see how it is or, or maybe eat it raw, you know. Um, you know, I mean, they're all, that, that, I think that's one of the most amazing things as well about Los Angeles. And I think that's what it has um, over. I mean, having worked in New York and worked in Paris, um, you know, the, um, the wealth of ingredients that are available to us because of the ethnic cultures, as you said, Los Angeles being a port city and also a city of in immigrants that is much more apparent than I think than any other major city in the United States where, you know, there are enclaves of, of communities that are just incredibly strong that bring their culture with them and hold on to it probably more fervently than anywhere else. 
And, um, and so the shopping here is just incredible. I mean, you can just go and find things that, you know, you've never seen before, nor you'll ever see them again, and unless you go to the, the, the country of origin, you know. And, uh, and, and I mean, for me, uh, I mean, it's, 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 um, it's definitely, you know, informed and reinvigorated and um, enriched my cooking. And, and also my passion and love for food, because, you know, you just realize in a big city like this that there are, you know, just, you know, millions of things you don't know. I mean, just like when I, that's what, one of the things I love about reading Jonathan's column as well, because just, I, I would love to know how he p- picks the places that he goes to eat. You know, I, uh, maybe I would like to ask you that question. Is it a phone book thing? Just to open it up and how do you do it? Because, you know, there's so many places like as I drive through Koreatown or whatever that I would love to just push that door open, but there's something inside me that stops. And obviously. <laughs> no, yeah, not so much with me. Yeah. <laughs> No, but my wife is always griping at me because you know, uh, you know, we have the, the telephone in the hall, and there's a pile of phone books like everybody has. But she's like trying to find you know the number of a dentist, and it's just the Chinese yellow pages, no, Japanese yellow pages, no, <laughs> Armenian book, no, Thai yellow pages, no, not this one. Yeah. <laughs> and it's you can I, I can probably spend two hours just you know sitting on the floor and reading phone books <laughs> I, i've often thought that it would be really great if you wrote an article about one mall in which you've been to every restaurant and you've watched them turn over five or six times <laughs> just sort of like a ballet of changing tastes <clears throat> yeah that would be funny there's that, that one san gabriel square the the first you know mega chinese mall um and there was a point where actually your, your friend Fred used to say it was like performance art because every single restaurant in that mall had one of my reviews in the window. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's, I like big balls. I mean, you can, don't have to drive as far. <laughs> May I ask Octavio a question? Please do. I'm curious to know, for all these years, you, you, you worked with Joachim, and then you, you were out on your own. And how would you, what were you itching to do with your hands that you held back or that you, you, you didn't let loose when you were with him? You know, um, quite often I'm asked, how does it feel to have your own restaurant now? <clears throat> well, I know that. I know the answer to that. <laughs> And, and I tell them, you know, not, not any different than when I was at the Patina Group because um, I approached my typical, you know, daily business life in the same way that I do now. Um, so in the same vein, uh, there really isn't anything that um, I, I, I didn't do while I was at the Patina Group. It wasn't, it wasn't a question of, oh, now I want to go do this. It was just a, a moment of, it was an opportunity to take a year off. Um, and really reflect in terms of what's going to happen in the you know the next chapter of my life. Uh, as a matter of fact, <clears throat> palette um, wasn't a concept that I was um, I had in my in my sights. Uh, I'd worked on a different business model, a different concept. It's actually a, a handheld you know burger concept that I called Relish. Um, and after being in and out of three lease negotiations at the eleventh hour. I kind of was starting to scratch my head and figure, well, is this not going to work out? Um, it wasn't until I was encouraged to speak with the landlord of this terrific building in Glendale 
uh, that I was familiar with um, that I, I really considered doing uh, palette. Um, it, it just kind of, it just happens, it evolves. I mean, you know, so many years of doing this and, and um, having done so many different types of restaurants, um, it, it's just an opportunity to uh, bring a group of really talented, hardworking people together, creating opportunities for them, and just throwing yourself into um, you know, doing something that you can nurture on a daily basis. I guess that's probably the, 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 the tipping point. Uh, you know, going from a single unit and 50 employees and 16 years later, 31 in restaurants and 3,000 employees. And, you know, at the end of my day, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't a chef. I wasn't an executive. I was kind of like a, a firefighter putting fires out all day long. So it was that that really kind of uh, compelled me to just take a big step back and throw myself into something that I could nurture on a daily basis. And, and that's what's happening. Well, I guess I can't ask him that question the next time he's on Good Food Channel. <laughs> that would be a KCRW. <laughs> um, I, think, I think one of the things I like the, the best about Palette is there's that sort of uh, something th thought up at 3.30 in the morning after like throwing back tequila. Uh, it's like, yeah, we're going to have a restaurant and it'll be like a wine bar and cheese big cheese room and then we'll cure our own meats and a uh, big wine store and I, I don't know we can sell books too maybe t-shirts <laughs> have some seating on the loading dock uh and have a really big puzzling statue of grapes <laughs> i really love the idea that it seems like you're making it up as you go along and the rest of could be something completely different next week but it'll, but it'll kind of rock are you thinking about it that way it's, it's <laughs> <laughs> sorry yeah well maybe i have a couple shots of tequila but uh, <laughs> it's it's that rawness definitely it's you know growing up here in la the whole punk rock scene it's you know it's just it's just, it's in our blood um and, and it really wanted to do something that was thoughtful and soulful and 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 nothing precious i mean you know, having done all sorts of restaurants and very high-end restaurants and working with ingredients and charging all these, you know, high dollars for things. It just, I wasn't feeling it any longer. And, and I think most diners uh, are, are more sophisticated today than ever before. And, and uh, uh, they know when something's authentic. They know, um, you know, when, when something's good. And, and so we try to peel eliminate all these layers of things and just really focus on the experience of eating good food and good wine and bringing the best of these two worlds together, which is quality and accessibility to that quality uh, and doing it in a way where the focus is, is, is the relationship between food and wine. Um, and, and you know, fortunately that, that platform, because we sit in a building that, that houses 30,000 square feet of cellared wine above us. It's a, it's a public storage for, for wine enthusiasts and wine collectors. It really gives us an opportunity that most restaurants don't have. Uh, so there was this natural connection, the synergy between the retail wine shop aspect of it and how that relates with the restaurant. Um, it was essentially a no-brainer. I mean, in 10, 15 minutes, I, I knew exactly what needed to, to happen in that, that space. And keeping the menu relatively small uh, allows us the ability to change it every week. I think we've changed you know, the core part of the menu 26, 27 times since wow. we opened up in, in mid-May. Um, 
so that's what keeps us, you know, excited and, and people come and they know that they're not going to have that same white fish two, three weeks down the road because it's gone. Um, so I guess that's uh, hopefully that answers the, the question. It, it does. Thanks. Yeah. Hey, and I, I know you, your, your cooking has the uh, paradoxical thing of being, it, it seems very improvisatory when you eat it, that it seems like. It's it seems like like a whim. It's something that that's that's there. You eat it. It's wonderful. It's an impression, and then on to the next thing. But I know that you are a very technical chef, and you leave absolutely nothing to chance. Uh, how how hard do you have to work to make something seem like a whim? <laughs> I think. I mean, a, a lot of. I think a lot. You know. A lot of times, especially when uh, when um, just doing like menus off the cuff or chef menus or stuff, uh, things like that. I mean, they, um, you know, I, I certainly, you know, I mean, I do. I have been cooking since I was eighteen, and um, you know, I'm thirty eight now. Mm -hmm. So you know, twenty years in in the kitchen, you you pick up you know a few things, and and uh, so I mean, improvisation. I mean, it's uh, you know, definitely. Um, it's a part of it, I think of of what I do at Providence, but it's not like performing without a net, yeah. Because you ha you sort of have a um, you know you have a, a baseline expectation of the way things are going to perform, ingredients are going to perform, and and all that sort of thing, and then you you know just put together flavors that you think will work, you know. And but but I do think uh, honestly I think that's where um, the the best work that I do and the best work that the people in the kitchen do I think is when we are just sort of like you know just moving towards a goal that is sort of moving at the time and, and you know you know working towards a moving target because you know oftentimes we get into the middle of a menu maybe five or six courses deep and and maybe four or five more to go and we really don't know where it's going to go at the you know at the end, we don't know what the last course is going to be um until we kind of get there and and uh, i'm lucky enough to be surrounded by a bunch of cooks and and uh the chef de cuisine that we have and 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 the sous chef that are you know talented and hardworking, and they they've been with me long enough that they they um you know they can always contribute as well so yeah i mean it, it, there there's a lot of insp uh, improvisation that goes on but at the same time i uh, you know many times that i you know to turn back to dishes that i did maybe 10 or 12 years ago because they're dishes that i know that i that will work and and i'll you know just update them and you know bring this bring them into sort of what we're doing now kind of sounds like a jam session with miles davis yeah, yeah. <laughs> no jerry Gar jerry garcia actually <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of those jam <laughs> sessions i mean do you do you find that people because of your customers because they're used to going to um some of the more adventurous restaurants around los angeles are more amenable to having uh, pigs ear in front of them than they might be other places. I hope so. I mean, we, you know, there are, but there are people that, you know, we had the pigs ear dish that you referred to. I mean, that was on the menu when we first opened, and it definitely, um, a lot of people talked about it. And, you know, yeah. there, you, you even have, um, there is a, uh, a fellow that works in the same profession that you work in that actually said it made him gag. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but frankly, I'm fine with that, you yeah. know, because it probably would make my six year old gag. And, and <laughs> so, I mean, there are, you know, clearly it's going to it's not going to work for everybody. But um, but I thought it was good. And it, it was fun. And and I like to work with with things like that. And, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, if you don't want to eat eel liver, just tell me and mm -hmm. we won't give you any, you know. <laughs> yeah. A friend, a friend of mine, uh, Barbara Kafka, who, you know, wonderful cookbook writer and consults on restaurants in New York. 
but uh, likes to talk about um, critic bait. You know, the, the thing that you, that you will have, uh, the eel dick pate. <laughs> <laughs> you need a lot of them. <laughs> you probably do. <laughs> because it probably, keep, it probably keeps well in the refrigerator and every critic has to order because yeah. it's the one thing they haven't seen before. <laughs> the only problem is, is that they all order it and then... Actually, you probably aren't going to have the problem with everybody wanting it, are you? No, no, no. <laughs> it's just a street cred thing. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Um, Evan, what's, what's the last thing that you had in Los Angeles at a restaurant that wasn't yours that just made you gasp with pleasure? Wow. Don't say that you'll get dick <laughs> Well, that goes with that saying. Um, gosh, come back to me. I've just, I, I don't get out much. Yeah. I don't get out much. I, I, I think. Um, hmm. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I'm just, I'm just drawing a blank here. Actually, I mean, I, I had something, but it wasn't. It wasn't in Los Angeles. I had recently ate something that I actually thought of you, and and uh, but it was Los Angeles, so maybe it's not pertinent. But I felt it was Los Angeles informed because it was a huarache. Ah, you, you a lovely get, slipper of masa. Can't get better than those. Uh, what one thing about? I, I I know most of your kitchens are um, largely staffed by. Latinos, um, you know, Mexicans, Oaxacans, Salvadorans, and we're all around them every day in the cooking environments. And how much do you think that their specific uh, way with cuisine has added to the way that cooking exists in Los Angeles? Wow, that's an interesting question. <clears throat> Octavio, you Octavio. Yeah, I think it's just you know part of their upbringing and their culture, and they eat, yeah. you know kind of unadulterated flavors and just uh, simple, honest ingredients, um, not overworking it. And um, I think where I'm at with food today, maybe it's the fact that I've been doing this a long time, or you know my age, but it's kind of full circle. You know, I, I think simplicity is the ultimate form of sophistication, and often the most difficult to obtain. Um, and I think uh, the ones that are good, the you know the Mexican, the Latino, la raza, um, they kind of get it. It's this natural thing. It's not a mental cerebral thing. It's this natural understanding. I think I think a lot of it. I mean, it, I had a guy in the kitchen. He actually just left, which I believe me, I'm paying the price right now. But mm -hmm. but this guy, he used to help me butcher fish, and he just had an elegance about the way he worked. And I mean, I think it was. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you know a lot of these uh, guys come come here, um, and and they're just they grew up much closer to the land than American kids did. Mm -hmm. And you know, I mean. You know, I mean, I, I don't know how many American kids I've had in the kitchen or that just, you know, like it's a, maybe this is the first time I ever saw a whole fish when they came into the restaurant. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, 
It's insane. Or a whole chicken. You know, you put a whole chicken in front of him. I have no idea what to do. But the guy, <laughs> the guy, you know, that came from, you know, from Oaxaca, maybe, you know, he might have killed chickens for his mother when he was seven or eight. And, you know, and he knows exactly what to do. And, you know, he just, you know, I don't know. I mean, this particular guy that I'm thinking of, he just had an elegance about the way he handled food that just came. And even though he was young and it was really the first time he worked in a restaurant, but it was clear that it was something that just was very natural to him. The, also, then, it, it's, don't you think also that it's a value of manual labor? Because cooking is something you do with your hands, and y y you're not there. They really they take pride. I mean, as as much as a cabinet maker or you know someone who did haute couture shoes or something. Just and a respect for ingredients. Too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've chastised several times people, you know, young American guys for throwing fish around, and I'm like, what? Are, what, are, what is your problem? You know, but yeah. You know, but this guy, he always handled it like it was uh, fine Corinthian leather or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've had a, com a, a unique experience simply because, you know, I'm Chicano and, and, you know, a lot of these a lot of these people look up to me, you know, being of Mexican heritage and speaking their language and treating them in a way that encourages them to pursue what they're doing, even if they start off as dishwashers. Um, and, and I think they find something that they probably don't find in other environments uh, living here in the States. Um, yeah, some of the best cooks are, you know, these, these um, wonderful cooks from Oaxaca and, and, and different provinces of Mexico. Are there, are there flavors in your cooking that wouldn't exist if uh, your kitchen didn't have as many um, Chicanos in it? Or I guess not Chicanos, more... Latinos yeah. and uh, um, I mean staff meal is a completely different thing than, <laughs> yeah. than, than, than you know what's happening on the menu and and you know we live for staff meal I mean we make a big deal out of it um, and uh, so whatever um, keeps us inspired and turned on about food um, it's not like we use a lot of different you know spices or different chiles or different mm -hmm. you know dried herbs uh, in in our cuisine at palate it's definitely more you know Mediterranean. Um, but those flavors and stuff will keep, keep, keep us grounded. It feeds our soul. Definitely. I would say I definitely have an appreciation for flavors that I didn't have before I came to LA and had the experience of working, you know, with a lot of Latinos in the kitchen where, you know, in New York, like, you know, I struggled to learn French and then I came in here and I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> 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 you know, not helping, you know, not at all. <laughs> But um, yeah, but I mean, I yeah, I definitely have an appreciation for flavors that I that, that I didn't have before I came here, and I you know, I mean, I said it before, it's just it definitely an eye-opening uh, sort of experience. Thanks, Evan. Do you have any idea where uh, this a broad and unfair question? But have you ever thought about where the Los Angeles restaurant might be in like five, ten years? Well, I I think that what we do is. You know, you hear the word authenticity a lot, right? And you you read a lot of stuff about the concept of authenticity and whether it's an authentic concept or not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the thing that I think we have is, I think the land, what the land gives us, grounds us. So it isn't necessarily the slavish authenticity of making either Italian food or French food. It's just on, honest food which is really interesting in a town that's sort of all about artifice. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, we haven't touched on our clients at all. 
<laughs> no, because we all cook. Oh. I, I mean, we all cook in an environment where probably more than a lot of other places in the country, people are very concerned with what they eat. Yes. And um, so the, this, this sense of, of sort of groundedness, I think, I mean, I hope that we're at this one side of the country. We get all this incredible stuff. Mostly the incredible stuff that we love to use comes from small producers mm -hmm. who love what they do and fight really hard to be able to do what they do. And yet, if you look at the, the sort of juggernaut of what's going on out there with, you know, agribusiness, um, what I hope that, that Los Angeles becomes is just the poster child of what food should be in, in the rest of the country. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> um, and, and that being said, I know that we're really spoiled really spoiled. I mean, I remember when I, I, must, I was a little kid, like eight or nine years old, my, my parents' family is from Philadelphia, so we would go back there to visit relatives. And every time we go back, we go to a restaurant, I would order a salad. My mother would look at me, don't order a salad. <laughs> and I'd be like, but I, I have to have a salad. It's like not a meal without a salad. And then this disgusting, you know, whipped dog of a piece of lettuce would show up <laughs> on the plate with some mayonnaise. And, and and this is, you know, a long time ago before there was, you know, mescaline and millions of different kinds of curated greens. But even then, mm -hmm. you know, here we had this beautiful plate of salad. It's, it's different. I remember my first time going to a four-star restaurant in New York when I was in my late teens. And I, I've been looking forward to this like you can't know, or maybe you can. Uh, <laughs> um, and I go there, and there are these. The entrance is lined with these crates of produce that are were the stuff that doesn't even make it to Ralph's. You know, it, it makes it to uh, you know Malf's or to <laughs> no Ralph's. <laughs> uh, but you know the, the same stuff that we sort of eat in not very good California supermarkets, except that it has the extra week of trucking it across the country. And this was supposed to be one of the great restaurants in the country, and the guys in the kitchen could clearly cook, but the level of product was just appalling. And I left feeling very much better for living in Los Angeles. And it's true that nationally, I don't think people appreciate that about this place as, as much as they should. And one of the things that I think is making me happiest is the um, people seeing the farmers almost as rock stars, that they see those little uh, circles on the plate, and they know somebody's bought a wiser potato and it just makes them happy, that they know where the strawberries have come from, that they see a certain chart and they recognize the farm they recognize the farmer because they've they've been at the market and they're buying the same stuff that a lot of the chefs are and what you know the a lot of the good chefs are doing are doing that value added they're taking the same like incredible product available to everybody and just adding that extra extra little bit that just shoves it into the stratosphere and on top of all, you know, the great ethnic influences and the weather and the fact that we can eat, you know, local things all year long. I, that, that's, I think that's the greatest thing about LA dining at the moment.
And young chefs. What? And the young chefs. And young chefs. The number, just the number yeah. of, of kids that think it's okay now to to have a career in, in the culinary world where, I mean, you know, when I was coming up, it was like, I remember when I first opened my restaurant, my mother sat there and sobbed. <laughs> <laughs> watched me, watched me in the kitchen, and just sobbed, you know, because it was like, oh, for this she got an MBA. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I for one, think you've done very well with your MBA. Thank you. <laughs> and I think we've come a little bit closer to figuring out what uh, Los Angeles cuisine is beyond the uh, Holland Beck burrito, the French dip, and the uh, Cobb salad, <laughs> <laughs> and the Langer's pastrami. You can't forget Langer's pastrami. <laughs> <laughs> one, of the, one of the most perfect things in the world. Okay, thank you, folks. Uh, we'll now begin our Q&A portion of our discussion tonight. We want to remind you that this is being recorded for podcasts, so all questions must be asked into the microphone. Just raise your hand and wait for us so staff to get to you, and there's two of us going around. Okay, so we've got questions. And please state your name before you question, if you can stand up. Um, my name is Carol, and this is both for uh, Jonathan um, and Evan. You were talking a little bit about the farmers and the farmers' markets, and there's been some controversy about the role and relationship of those farmers' markets to the consumer as opposed to the restaurants. Jonathan said that you could go to a farmer's market and buy the same things the restaurants are buying, and there have been a lot of articles in the paper that because restaurants are buying up all the items, consumers are not able to buy those items. So we talk a little bit both a, a little bit more about the role of the farmers markets but how you see the interaction between the consumer buying things directly and selling their best products or special products to the restaurants. I think that happens with the very few things. I mean, I mean obviously berries. Uh, what mulberries. Mulberries. And <laughs> you're going to run out in the first 15 minutes anyway. Yeah, right. Yeah. And uh which aren't as good as the ones I wrote my tree in the backyard, but I only get four at a time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and even with things like mulberries, if you sort of like, you know, you know, wink at the, the, the guy at the Weiser booth, he'll like pull the box of mulberries from underneath. If mulberries in season and he happens to have them, that there are times when somebody will actually come in and buy all the Meyer lemons anyway. But if they buy all the Meyer lemons, then there's five other people selling Meyer lemons. I don't. I think it's I a tempest in a teapot. Yeah. And and I really also think. Well, I know that the reason consumers have this extraordinary choice is because the farmers know that they can make a living off of what they sell to to restaurants. I was recently on a panel with um, Mr. Pudwell. Who those of you who, who who frequent the markets know is the berry the berry guy, and he basically said it was because of Sherry Yard that he planted ten more acres of of berries because he knew that that no matter how much he had, Sherry would buy it. So um, I I think that it was a good story, but I think the most important thing is making relationships, and that's what the market's all about. And if you have a good relationship with a farmer, he'll give you a heads up as to what's coming, and he'll set it aside for you. Yeah, I can't think of a I can't think of a single guy that you know you talk. He'll tell you that you know this great limited peach is coming out next week. You tell him to save you two pounds of it, and he saves you two pounds of it. 
it's going to be gone if you're just there or the mushroom guy in Hollywood. But you got to go early. And you can't go after ten. And also, don't underestimate the 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 value that the farmer has for their the general public. I mean, they 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 know that it's not going to be just the restaurants that are going to keep them in business. So I I, I see them being fair and even handed pretty much. Um, you know, at the wrong and you know, time, restaurants the fight each other too, Listen, because I, there's just like an allocated amount for restaurants. I've been at a, at a stand on the Wednesday market, and I've just been you know hammered by some ladies trying to. Excuse me, can you get over? Uh, I need to get. Uh, I need to get. You know, it's brutal no matter what. Yeah. yeah and and for you, Michael, they probably actually fight in your parking lot trying to sell you stuff. Not so much, but I, I <laughs> no, but I agree with Evan. I mean, I think I think you know the diversity of what the farmers grow and and their ability to bring to market largely depends on the fact that they can sell restaurants in bulk. Uh, because uh, you know, for those guys to 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 wake up, some of them at you know, or not go to bed maybe and leave right. two o'clock in the morning from where their farm is to get down to L.A. and and then to have to pack stuff up and take it back home is a big develop- dilemma for them. Wow. They need to sell it. And um, you know it's it uh, you know the the restaurants help them help them survive. We have a question to your left. Hi, um, my name is Charlie. This question is for our chef Simarusti. Um, could you talk about uh, a little bit about um, your experience on Iron Chef? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you the contract that I signed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, what do you want to know? Sorry. I thought he was serious. <laughs> well, they called and asked me a couple of years ago when we first opened the restaurant, but it just wasn't a possibility for me to leave and go to New York and do it. So they called again, you know, a while ago. This is actually September of 07 that we taped it. Um, but um, they just called and asked if I would do it, and I said yes, And because uh, I, was, I was already in New York anyway for the International Chefs Congress, which is this coming week, actually. And um, and it, it, it was great. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much had I lost. <laughs> but if I had to lose, I would have been proud to lose Morimoto because he's a you know a chef I have a lot of respect and admiration for, and it was, it was just great. I, I loved it. I, you know, it was a lot of fun. Uh, but I don't ever want to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Question over here to your right. Uh, I'm Alex, and I wondered, we've talked a lot about the bounty of the local farms and the produce here, and it makes me think, um, I wonder why slow food, the slow food movement hasn't gotten more of a, a, a grasp or, a, or a, a foothold in Los Angeles, and I wondered whether you're optimistic for slow food in the, in the future. I know Evan's very involved in that. So. Oh, that, that, that's all my fault. I, I apologize. <laughs> no, I, I was the uh, leader of Slow Food in Los Angeles for eight years. And uh, it was a full-time job. And I already had two other full-time jobs. <clears throat> and because of the nature of the organization, there's not a lot of support from the national organization for running the individual chapters. In Los Angeles, if, if you've ever tried to do anything with volunteers here, it's kind of tough. So um, I, I step back f- from it, but I would disagree that Slow Food doesn't have a foothold here. Maybe the organization branded doesn't have a foothold here, but so much goes on in, in this town that is informed by all of the values and missions of, of Slow Food. And in fact, I, I was just up in San Francisco for Slow Food Nation, 
And I, I ran into so many chefs up there. Um, I think the fact that we're doing what we do, which is this process of having a relationship with producers and educating consumers about those products and and raising the bar um, for for what is appropriate food for humans to eat right now in the 21st century. Um, I think we're doing it as much here as anywhere else. Um, I will make a little commercial right now. Um, I'm involved with an organization. After I stepped back from Slow Food, one of the reasons I stepped back was because I found it very frustrating that we weren't allowed to be political. And um, so I am now on uh, the board of an organization called Roots of Change Fund. And our mission is a sustainable food system in California by the year 2030. And what we're involved in, aside from just bringing all different kinds of change makers together around a table to talk, like subsidized cotton farmers with fishermen and um, policy wonks. Uh, we're also involved in creating a lot of language for a new food and farm bill here in California. And um, we've been asked to join together with another organization in Washington, D.C. to start working on language for a white paper to brief a president, a new president, who hopefully would might be interested in the food system. <laughs> we'll caribou. see how that goes. Caribou. Plain yeah. shot caribou. Plain shot caribou. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to fall. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I, I hear you. But, you know, Slow Food is a totally decentralized movement. You can start your own chapter. We have a question in the front. Hi, my name is Brian. I'm, this is a question for Jonathan. Sure. I'm wondering what restaurants, two or three restaurants you've been to lately where you've just sat, you know, after you ate something and said, wow, that was great. Um, well, <laughs> three of them are actually sitting on the panel. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the idea of, like, of, of dinner at Palette is just, it's, it's less like going to a restaurant and kind of like going over to, like, a friend's house where you just, like, plays you songs from records and you know keeps on putting new stuff except that it's food so it's like you know there's stuff that i've never had before you know sometimes there's like a jar of yes sometimes there's a jar of chicken there's always stuff in jars or things pickled that you wouldn't have thought of would ever like hit brine um <laughs> uh there was a i'm not sure you're ever gonna do it again but there was this you you made or a friend of yours made this sort of prosciutto out of uh, shot wild boar, and it tasted like death, but in a good way. <laughs> You're so I happy right now. <laughs> You're so happy. Yeah, I actually tattooed that on my chest. <laughs> and it tastes like it's, death. It's, it's 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 such a different way of eating than sitting down and having six formal courses, and I love that. And, and I love that too. And every time I go to Providence, I just sort of like float home, and not just because of the wine, but <laughs> um, it's. And in, in terms of the, for want of a better word, ethnic places, it's just amazing that in Los Angeles, like how often I'll run across not just a dish I haven't seen before, but like an entire cuisine I had no idea existed, and. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great serendipitous place to eat. I think. 
You have to want to open that door. Yeah. <laughs> we have a question on the front here to your right. I'm Stephanie, and uh, there are so many questions to ask, uh, but one related to the future of food in Los Angeles. And I'm wondering if you think that Los Angeles will be able to support the kind of store that you might find um, in uh, Berkeley, the Berkeley area like the Monterey Market. So what we have in LA are fine farmer's markets. Uh, I don't shop anywhere but the farmer's market if I can possibly um, um, avoid it. But it would be wonderful too to have a grocery store that is so brilliantly... He's, he's amazing. He's amazing. And Should. so can L.A. do that? Garrett, first of all, we should say what Monterey Market is, is this unique, amazing market that um, Bill Fujimoto runs in Berkeley, and he, he's another one. I mean, a lot of farmers are in business because he promised that whatever they grew, he would sell. So a wonderful documentary called Eat at Bill's that's just... He just smiles through the whole thing. You think, this is the happiest guy in the world. Um, I think if, if Los Angeles were the size of Berkeley, it'd be really easy to do that. I think the biggest impediment to anybody ever doing anything like that is where do you put it? You know, it, it's, it's the, the, the geographic distances here make it so hard, and the money involved in putting it together real estate-wise makes making a bad decision so huge, such a huge risk. Yeah, it would be great if the if the city would put up. Money. I mean, not to do anything like that, but to do something like the the fair like market. a real farmers market. Yeah, or if the farmers market sold uh, actual, you know, produce. Produce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I would love that. That's right in my neighborhood. <laughs> Question to your left over here. Hi, I'm Jeannie. Um, I have a similar question, and this is for any of you to answer. I was wondering, so LA, a lot of people perceive it as a land of fads, whether it's diet or fashion. And so I see a lot of um, your local markets, like Albertson, Ralph's, and even Food for Less have an organic section. And so do you, any of you see this as just a fad or something that could be sustained and continue to grow? Well, it's the... It's the only part of the retail food industry that has any growth left in it. So everybody wants to be in it. And yeah, it's going to grow in those uh, sad little shriveled avocados <laughs> will one day be, I hope, like large, plump, and delicious avocados. And, pe and people are like, people are excited about organic food and people are going to the point where they're not just buying the the one that we all know that you know comes from you know 1200 farmers in Wisconsin and actually has I think the biggest plant in the country I mean bigger than what we think of as the corporate milk things and they're actually going towards you know smaller producer to you um the co-op sort of model product. yeah I, well, I, if, if I may, please. just this look historically, I mean, 20 years ago when I first started cooking, actually 25 years ago in the early 80s, uh, particularly here in Los Angeles in Southern California, there was this monumental shift, you know, culinarily and gastronomically, uh, where uh, these European chefs 
the first generation of these European chefs started to come and you know they discovered the ingredients that we that we had here they just couldn't work with so they really were the uh, the you know the instrument of forcing or getting local farmers to grow haricovers or or frise or, or the mescaline lettuce and so it takes time for things to kind of um, trickle down and then ultimately percolate its 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 way back up uh, so you look. 20 years from now, I think it, you know, we can only be encouraged. And certainly if we have anything to do about it, I mean, I really look forward towards the day where, you know, restaurants and farms, they're, they're, they're connected somehow. Well, I just interviewed a guy uh, last week about vertical farming. And, and uh, you know, when you think about sustainability, um, can organics be sustained? Well, first of all, the word organic has sort of been totally corrupted. But if we can get beyond that, I think the only way to sustain people is really to back away from the load of pesticides that's on the planet. And there's a lot of ways that farmers grow these days where they don't spray and they don't use um, uh, evil empire, um, you know, GMOs or ready roundup things, but they're not allowed to call it organic because they don't meet this... Uh, narrowly defined um, set of rules that, that the federal government decided should be organic. That's actually much more watered down than the California standards used to be. Um, so I, I think that, that there will come a day when there'll be a restaurant, and instead of those, you know, 10 stories of wine sitting above Octavio, there'll be 10 stories of hydroponically grown, no pests because they're inside, um, absolutely delicious, fresh produce, and you'll be able to, you know, pick fruit on your way to your apartment. Wouldn't that be great? No doubt. And then all the farmland that's in the middle of the country can revert back to hardwood forests. And <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't have any dreams. <laughs> and, and not in quite the uh, Marie Antoinette with the scented sheep kind no, of way. No, not like that at all. Uh, <laughs> A, cer a certain New York restaurant that I won't mention, <laughs> but, but even here you've always had you've always had people who grew tons of backyard stuff. I mean, uh, Cantor Canyon, uh, who does a lot of really good greens, started out in uh, the backyard of Nancy Silverton's dad. Um, that even a restaurant like the, the Parkway Grill always had like a little thing where they grew things they couldn't get. Uh, a lot of the ethnic restaurants have backyards where. I mean, in their yards, they're growing turmeric because they don't like the local turmeric, and they're growing uh, coffee or lime because the leaves aren't fragrant when they're shipped from Thailand. And it is, I think, largely chefs that it's 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 coming from chefs. The La Casita Mexicana, which I know I talk about so much that people here are bored about it, but uh, there's an, a wonderful communal organic farm in Watts that they they go to a few times a week, and you walk down the rows, and like every guy will be from a different region of Mexico, which you'll be able to tell by the, the different plants that they're growing. And the guy just goes in there and he takes a machete and he cuts you an armful of romerito and it makes the idea of shipping something down from Danuba seem almost antediluvian. <laughs> what role does a food writer have? Um, I 
try to encourage people to eat things that I like and not to eat things that I don't like. (laughs) 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 And I, I would hope that what I like would also be what you would like and is a positive direction for things to go. Though I... I admit I did write about a lot of hot dogs this summer. <laughs> do you do you write in, in a what? Oh, she was a wonderful writer. <laughs> we have a question to your far left here. And just to let you know, this will be the last question of the night. Everyone will have an opportunity for additional questions uh, for our panelists at the reception. So please join us. Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Emily. Um, to the restaurateurs on the panel, uh, you touched upon the clientele of Los Angeles. How often do sometimes the tempestuous tastes of this town affect what you serve? <laughs> did, did everybody read Chelsea, Chelsea Handler's semi rant in the new L- LA magazine and the Sunday Times? Mm-mm. That was pretty funny. She, she talked about being a waiter and, and dealing with customers. I don't have any problem whatsoever. And and I think um, part of it is that I'm in Glendale. It's almost like an even playing field. <laughs> you know, so I get, uh, we get people uh, from uh, all, all, all over town. And I think it's just kind of this unexpected environment. So kind of people check their, um, you know, preconceived notions at the door. And um, Having said that, you know, being involved with a, a restaurant group like the Patina Group, where we had restaurants all over the place and we serve, you know, thousands and thousands of people a day, um, you know, you just don't take it personal. You just kind of put your best foot forward. It's just food for God's sake. Um, <laughs> uh, so, it, and, and fortunately, those are, and you hope that they're, you know, a, a small number of of your guests, and and uh, for the most part, people kind of put you in, in their hands and and and. And, and it's a good exchange, but um, Glend- Glendale, a, the new frontier. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's a lot about kindness because I think that a lot of issues that we see in restaurants here in Los Angeles are about control, and um, and that in this world we feel often very out of control that things are out of our control, and the, one of the things that you can't control is what you're about to put in your mouth, and I think that making people feel really at ease and and like they're going to have a good time, um, goes a long way to relaxing that need. And you don't get a lot of sauces on the side people eat? Oh, we do. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we have sauce boats. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're, they're, I don't know. I, I, we, I came from a place where I really cut my teeth at the Syracuse in New York. If there was any possibility that we had the food that someone wanted within the four walls of the building, or if they could be procured within the next, you know, within a few city blocks, Sirio's mantra was that we would do it, you know. And, you know, he had clientele that had been coming to that restaurant for more than 20 years. And so, you know, they're, they, he, he, you know, he was just uh, very firm about that, that if it was in the house and, you know, with all the people that he had on payroll, he was going to be sure that people got what they wanted. And so, I, you know, I try to live by that too. Right. Which probably leaves us with the uh, the little legend on the bottom of the menu at Animal, a, a new place that opened on Fairfax, which said, uh, 
I think uh, alterations and substitutions uh, respectfully declined. <laughs>